opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to Lessons in Advocacy from the LGBTQ plus community. This is our second presentation, the first of which was a month ago with Eric Marcus from Making Gay History, who has collaborated with us on this series. Um, the idea came to us by one of our allies and an ally to the LGBTQ plus community is someone who is straight, but advocates and, and believes in our community and believes that we are equally deserving of all the rights of everybody else in this country. So when Debbie came to us with this idea for this series, we jumped on it immediately. Um, if you did not have a chance to listen to the first program or the Pride Connection, please don't feel like you can't join the conversation. We're going to be referencing some of the great um, stuff that we heard in the last program, but we're really going to be talking tonight about good trouble, good troublemaking, and how some of the highlights of what the LGBTQ community has achieved can be translated to our blind and low vision community. Um, having said that, I am so very, very thrilled to say that this program really couldn't have come on a better Monday because our community, um, along with other communities out there, are, are very gleefully and very happily celebrating the fact that the Respect for Marriage Act has been passed in both houses, uh, you know, both chambers of the Congress and the Senate and is on its way to President Biden's desk. And I would love to be a fly on the wall or a reporter if I still had my sight. Um, actually, I'd love to be a reporter blind, to be quite honest, at the signing of that bill. I'd love to know who's there in the audience and, and what remarks are made, because this is definitely a moment that, um, forgive me for getting a little choked up, but it's a moment that so many of us really thought might never come, even with, you know, the legalization of gay marriage in most states. The fact that we have a federal protection now is something that we were afraid might never come. So tonight's conversation really couldn't have come at a better time. Um, that's not going to be the only topic of conversation, though, but we absolutely have to mention this as we get started. I'm going to turn it over for a few minutes to our current president of Blind Pride International, Mr. Gabriel Lopez Cafati. Hello, everyone. Welcome. And uh, this is, like Anthony said, part two of this exciting conversation. Um, I am, I'm in so many levels, very, very happy and very proud. Um, this is a very symbolic program for me um, in, in many regards. Uh, again, thanks to our ally, Debbie Grubb, to for bringing this idea to us and uh, collaborating and making it happen. Thank you so much to Eric Marcus, who's a great friend and collaborator of uh, BPI for many uh, events now. And uh, if, if you haven't been able to follow Making a History, it's, it's such a well done uh, podcast documentary uh, compilation and uh, you know it's it, it's like Anthony said it's the real troublemakers um, who caused good trouble to effect change and gain some 
some traction in the civil rights movement for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, the, uh, before I, I, I have to tell you that I'm just here to introduce the program. I have another ACB commitment that I have to run to that is also at eight Eastern. So, um, wow. Uh, please, please, please participate. Please, uh, be open-minded and look at the similarities. Um, in one of our meetings with uh, the group here, Leah Gardner, uh, Anthony Corona, Debbie Grob, Eric Marcus, we were talking about so many similarities in the advocacy of the LGBTQ community. I'm sure Leah is going to talk about the conclusion that we both reached when listening to the experience of the lesbian couple who was not allowed to sit in a specific section of a restaurant in California and the owner decided to actually remove that section rather than ever allow a same-sex couple sit because that area was only reserved for uh, couples. So we both <laughs> immediately thought, wow, it sounds like when we get a guide dog denial in a restaurant or in a shared ride, Um, but anyway, um, I want to say that this is very symbolic to me. And before I leave you in excellent and the best hands, I want to say, um, that, uh, I feel that it's a way in which I am publicly passing on the baton. Um, Leah Gardner has been recently elected, uh, for, uh, the presidency of BPI. I decided that after two consecutive terms, uh, it was time for me to um, step down. And I have many other commitments that I have to attend to. I'm very happy that my very own partner, Anthony Corona, has stepped up to be vice president. And I'm sure that Anthony and Leah um, will, will be a very, very dynamic uh, president and vice president of BPI. And what a better way to start. Uh, they take office in January 1st, or like Leah says, January 2nd. <laughs> but uh, what a better way for them to start their presidency and vice presidency than with an event like this one. Pure advocacy and uh, transferring the lessons learned from the LGBTQ advocacy into the advocacy of the blind and visually impaired community that ACB and all of us do together. So please learn, please participate. And uh, I can't wait to hear the recording of this program. I'm going to have to step out. But like I said, I leave you in the best hands possible, the new leaders of BPI and our very dear ally, Debbie Grubb. Thank you for, thank you, our streamers, our host, um, ACB Media and all of you here. So just go and cause some good trouble. <laughs> and if I don't get to talk to you um, out here on ACB Media or on this call, happy holidays, all the best, best wishes, many blessings, and definitely all my love. So Leah, Anthony, Debbie, all yours. Well, all right, thank- we're going to hear from Leah now. <laughs> thank you so much, Gabe, um, for your stewardship over the past four years 
and uh, for being so instrumental in, in your leadership role in, in bringing um, BPI back to a really robust um, leader in in ACB as a whole. Um, I was very proud to be part of that, this sort of like re revival <laughs> in many ways yes. of, of BPI. For those that don't know, I, I um, was involved in the meetings in 1999 at the Los Angeles ACB convention where um, the discussion about um, trying to uh, certify BPI and at that the time it had had no name. Um, it was just kind of a loose congregation of um, GLBTQ plus individuals that came to convention every year. Um, there was a decision made to, to try to make what has become BPI an affiliate. And it was really exciting to be on the forefront of that. And over, I guess, we uh, got our um, certification in uh, 2000. And it has been quite a uh, <laughs> quite an eventful 22 years. I'm definitely much older. I've seen the world change a great deal from what it was. Uh, but I think this is probably the strongest that BPI has ever been. And um, I'm I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty humbled to to now be um, leading the organization as president and to have a great um, wonderful vice president right right uh, next to me. I think we have a lot of great things to come. But you know, I think one of the things that we are most grateful for in BPI over the past twenty some odd years is our invaluable allies. And we have had so many people um, encourage us through the years, uh, support us in so many different ways. And, you know, one one of those people is on the call tonight, and she really spurred this particular series of discussions uh, in terms of um, advocacy in the GLBTQ plus community. And I just want to introduce to everybody, uh, Debbie Grubb. Thank you, Leah, so much. Um, I'm going to paint a little tapestry or map where we can put our conversational pins. If you all haven't had the chance to hear Eric Marcus's wonderful presentation a month ago, please do. But for the sake of allowing us conversation give you a brief, brief introduction to each person and tell you what they did and why they did, because it is so beautiful. And what is one of the most wonderful things about this whole event is in the LGBTQ plus community is recognition of diversity and recognition of the different places from which these people came and how what they did has been woven together to make this community strong and to allow 
a strong group such as Blind Pride International. When Eric began his presentation, he introduced himself and said that he had been, he had worked for CBS News and he was a segment coordinator and he wanted very much to be on camera. And at the same time, he was invited to write a book about gay history. And when he was told, ain't no way you're going to ever be on camera as an openly gay man, he wrote his book. And in the writing book, he took a beautiful personal journey. And in his recordings and writings, captured the lives and the voices and the passions of many people who have gone. I have lived long enough that I lost one of my friends in the whole world to AIDS. And I remember when he came home to the small town in which we grew up and the mixed reaction with which he was received. And I've never been afraid to speak my mind. And so I yelled at a few people and um, we, we, well, excuse me, it just was very difficult. So I know, I know the value of these beautiful recordings. The first, um, the first person that um, Eric introduced us to was a lady who called herself Lisa Ben. Her real name was Edith Ibe, and she scrambled the words of lesbian, and she began this work in 1947. Now, if you can stop and think how long ago in terms of advocacy and inclusion 1947 was. And Lisa worked in an office in the entertainment field as a secretary. And her boss said, I want you to look busy. That doesn't mean doing woman stuff, such as knitting or doing your grocery list or whatever. So our Lisa Ben started a newsletter that she called a magazine. And she wrote it in her office. And in this magazine, she had a column called Whatchamacallum. And in wonderful newsletter, she talked about her dream for our community. And one of them was that there would be a time when the LGBTQ plus community would be accepted into society. And Lisa gave that newsletter free of charge to everybody she could think of. And her friends in the, in the world of, of LGBTQ plus gave it to their friends. She wrote parodies to popular tunes. She went to gay clubs and she revolutionized that because if you can believe that there was a time when the owners of these clubs allowed straight men to come in and watch the dancers and say very horrible things. And it was accepted. And she stopped that. And she sold her own act. And she was quite the woman. He interviewed her in 1989. And I urge you to listen to her voice. The next person he interviewed was a man named Frank McKinney. And Frank McKinney was another a fascinating man. He, he was um, a Harvard graduate, a PhD in astronomy. And he was from his job with the federal government just because he was a gay man. And in 1953, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed a document into law stating that there would be no people in same-sex relationships working in any form of the federal government. Frank lost his job and he was blacklisted so that 
while other people who are gay and lesbian, et cetera, quietly went away and found other jobs because case wasn't publicized as much, he couldn't find employment anywhere. And he once said, I would never declare war on the federal government and they're not going to declare war on me. And so in 1961, he started a chapter um, for gay and lesbian people. And he, um, and he also, um, he also began to become a radical. He said that he was really a man who simply wanted to live his life. And yet all people of LGBTQ plus persuasions heard was that they were sick, that they were sinners, and that they were mentally ill. And so, and so one of the great things he did I got chills when I heard this. You know, we in the in the disability community remember Justin Dart and is saying nothing about us without us. Well, long before old Justin, Frank said, we don't need to hear from the experts. We are the experts. And this movement is going to reflect our views and our power. And he also, he also um he, he was just a wonderful man, and he in, took him 14 years. But through his advocacy and his speaking out, he got that, that rule changed, that, that people who were gay and lesbian, et cetera, would once again, as they should be, um, work once again in the federal government. He, along with some other advocates, rec, um, put together the first protests that were really organized in 1965. And he was very active when the Stonewall Inn bar incident happened. And we, time does not allow us to go into all of that. But what I'm going to tell you is that if you want to hear about it, there is, if any of you are familiar with the Unity app from the audio description project that does national parks, there is a national park in, in New York, the Stonewall Inn, and there is a beautiful described brochure about that inn. And our friend and helper, um, Eric Marcus, is actually quoted in that, in that thing. So I would urge you all to really look at that. Um, so um, here we go. So now... The next person that I want to talk to you about is a young man named Morty Manford. And he was at a rally where Mayor Lindsay was speaking. And of course, the people on the outside were not allowed in because they were considered to be troublemakers. And the people who, who were in the community of which we are speaking tonight were brutalized and beaten up, as was their lot in, through the police departments all over this country. And this young man, Morty, found his way into the building. He said, he's, in his interview, he said, I still don't know how I did it. But Eric says he was 21 and he didn't know that he wasn't supposed to do stuff and that he couldn't do stuff. He went up on the stage and he told the people about how people um, of of the LGBTQ plus persuasion were being treated and manhandled and beaten by the police. He was summarily thrown out, 
And Mayor Lindsay thought, oh, I've got it covered. So he said, well, if he were still here, I'd let him speak. And you know what? That young man found his way back in there again, went up on the stage, said to the mayor, I understand that you are going to allow me to speak. And the mayor had no choice because the people, when the young man was out, started calling him, what is going on with these people? Why are they being treated in such a way? And so this young man began to really bring publicity to this issue. And, and he and his mother, and we'll talk more about this in a few minutes, um, he, they, they, uh, they set up PFLAG, which is Parents of Friends of Lesbians and Gays. And remember, that was back in the day when it was flagged Friends of Lesbians and Gays. And our dear friend died at the age of 42 in 1992 of AIDS, but his voice and his work live on. Two of my favorites that Eric talked about were Barbara Giddings and Kay LeHusing. And these two people were truly an amazing couple. They, they organized demonstration. They were at, they were in crucially important in getting the notice of mentally ill, getting all of our wonderful friends in this community removed from that list. Can you imagine that far into the 20th century and our friends were still considered mentally ill? And one of the great things they did was Barbara was really interested in books and she wanted to, um, to have a listing of all the books that had been written from the beginning through 1971 when this all happened about people who are in same-sex relationships. And so she read this book called The Well of Loneliness, which was written in the 1920s. And she said that that helped her recognize herself. So she and her friend went to the library, the library association, um, association convention, they rented a booth and they plastered everywhere, put everywhere in elevators, on tables, handed them out, this bibliography of these books. It wasn't going anywhere. So they reinvented a fair thing from county fairs called the kissing booth. And what they did was they had men, at, two men at one end and two ladies at the other, and they put up a sign, come and get hugs and kisses from homosexual people. Well, the people were thrilled and excited about this. Now they weren't going in there, but they, they just mobbed the booth. Well, Life Magazine was there and the news stations from Dallas, which even in those days was a pretty big city was there. And the coverage was astounding. And the Library Association was furious because they said, we've got authors from all over the world who are well-known and we get this kissing booth um, portrayed in the news. But it was a wonderful thing. And the assistant citizens advocacy got this done. And that is such an amazing thing. Where after Barbara's death, Kay um, was in a retirement community and she began a gay table. And people from all over the community came when they chose to and had fellowship and ate at the gay table. The next two ladies we're going to talk about are Deborah Johnson and Sandra Romano. 
And this interview, what happened with them happened in 1983. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because this is the piece that Gabriel just finished talking to us about. But what happened was they wanted to go to this restaurant where there was these booths where people who were deeply in love could go and have a quiet private dinner and just be. And apparently they were taken into the restaurant and they were actually seated at the booth. But then, as so happens with us and guide dogs, the maître d' came over and said, sorry, you can't sit here. So they said, now, just like us, you can sit anywhere in this restaurant. We'll even give you free drinks, but you can't sit in the romantic booths. So these two women who never thought once about suing were incensed because the next day was the actual holiday celebrating the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King. And they were remembering all that they had been taught. And so they hired a name that should be familiar to all people who are who are under attack, Gloria Allred. And she Amen. wasn't then, but she won they she won their and this is so important because these citizens activists who had no desire to sue or anything else, they they knew that they had the right thing. And this was the first time that the civil rights laws giving all people equal access to public accommodations was tested in terms of same-sex couples. Now, the ending is a little bit sad too because the owner of this Papa Shoe restaurant took all the kiss, all the romantic booze out the curb and he said, today romantic dining dies. Well, you know what? It died in his place but it hasn't died and it continues to live because of the work of these, of these people. And that is the most ama- amazing thing. So then, um, so they, they did that. And it was really very interesting because it shows our, again, in the deep South, when um, pools were supposed to be integrated, sometimes they close the pools instead of integrate them. The next person that we're going to talk briefly about is Perry Watkins, who was also um, an, was also um, a citizen activist. And he was in Germany in 1968 when he was 18 years old, studying to be a dancer. And he was drafted and he got called home and he filled out the form and he checked the box that he was gay. And later when he was asked why he did it, you know what he said? I loved it. All these other things were so important to him, but he said, my mother would give me hell had I lied. And think about the raising. So anyway, he was accepted into the military. He didn't think he would be because not only was he gay, he's black. And he had a 15 year career, had a stellar career in the army. And one day without reason, he was just, thrown out. And not only was he thrown out, he was given a dishonorable discharge, which meant that he got no benefits. He had been in the army for all this time. He found it hard to find a job. He lost his home. He lost everything. And when Eric went to interview him at his house, Perry was wrapped up in coats because it was winter time and he was cold and he couldn't afford heat. And 
Eric says in our interview that he, his batteries were running low and he had to plug in his recorder. And he said, I felt very bad about using his electricity. But the point is that he took his case to um, the Supreme Court. He was eight years in, in, into that when Eric um, interviewed him. And finally, he was reinstated into the military. Um, but he decided to leave the military and take a settlement. And in 1993, he was the Grand Marshal at the Gay Rights Parade. And that is just a wonderful thing. And he, he just was just the best. The next person we're going to talk about really touches my heart also. Her name is Paulette Goodman. She is an ally like some of us. And she had her very reasons for understanding and want to, to support. First of all, she had a daughter who is lesbian. Second of all, she was directly impacted by the Holocaust. Her family, her sister and her sister's husband were taken away by the Gestapo. They had a little boy who for a day escaped being taken. And then the, the Gestapo came and said, if you don't take, give us him, your whole family is going to be taken. And besides, his mother wants him. And bless the little child's heart, he was reunited with his mother, but eventually they were sent to Auschwitz and were never heard of again. And Paulette, Paulette says that she knew that she had to do this because she knew what it was to be hated, to have prejudice to be in danger. And she shared so many of the life experiences of people that it was an easy step for her to become an ally. And so that was extremely moving. The last person I'm going to share with you tonight is um, a gentleman by the name of Vito Russo. And Vito is a most interesting person. He was a film historian, and he decided to look into how people of our community that we are highlighting were being treated in film because he truly believed that a lot of the public attitude toward our friends was being guided and mandated by what people saw on the screen. And so he began his work. He wrote a beautiful book called The Celluloid Closet which our friend Eric found a copy of in his young college days. And Vito was, um, was just a wonderful person. And he did so much to, for organization, but his great desire and great love was preparing the way for the next generation, the next people. He wanted to leave a legacy and he wanted to pass the torch. And I thought about after so many years of doing the legislative work, chairing that committee for the Florida Council of Blind, and I felt led, I felt compelled to pass that torch to Anthony. And it is my honor and privilege to work with him. And that was, that was Vito's. And in his interview, he said, I know when I die. And Eric said he was quite sick then and his partner Jeffrey had died a few years before. He said, I know when I die, my book and my articles and what I have said will reach out to somebody else, some young kid who will take it and run with it. 
And that is one of the most valuable lessons we can learn. And so it is with a full and humble heart that I turn the proceedings back over to the moderator for this <laughs> evening, Anthony. Thank you, Debbie. Um, thank you, Leah. So I, I want to take a personal moment of privilege here. I've often said on Pride Connections, on calls that we've given, I'm, I'm a very lucky person. I grew up in New York City, Staten Island, New York, and I actually met in person three of the people that Eric spoke about. I actually met Eric, too, when I was a youngin. Um, I'm not sure if he remembers. Gabriel and I are slated to go to dinner with he and his partner in May when we're in New York. And I'm going to bring it up and, and see if I can jog his memory. But um, I, I met Manfred's mother and his aunt, who at that point were still nationally um, running PFLAG. Um, I met Kay. Um, unfortunately, Barbara was already gone. Um, what a dynamic, dynamic force of energy. And I got to meet Vito. He was very, very sick. And The Celluloid Closet was a book that really touched me early on coming out. And I remember there was a, a very, very famous gay bookstore on Christopher Street in, in the West Village. And he was giving a talk. And that year at the Pride Parade, um, this was, uh, you know, so the Pride Parade, the Pride Celebration in New York goes, you know, for the entire weekend. There's tea dances. There's all kinds of events. And the Pride Parade had been the day before. And there was a lot of young folks, folks my age at the time, who were not, um, not polite. They were not respectful of the generations that had fought for the rights and had, had, had been beaten, had been abused, had lost their jobs, had been, their names were printed in the newspapers. Their photographs were printed in the newspaper. So, you know, not only did you lose your job, but you lost your community standing. You couldn't get other jobs because they printed these, this about you in the papers. And so there was a huge blown up photo, you know, poster sized photograph of this incredibly I mean, one of the most beautiful people I have ever looked at. It's like Michelangelo's David. And I'm looking and I had no clue that that was Vito. Um, he was very, very sick at the time. But he stood there and gathered all the energy that he could. And he railed at us, at us young folks. How dare we not understand? How dare we not recognize? How dare we not respect what folks had gone through so that we could dance in the streets, that we could have a tea party on the dance on the, on the pier so that we could celebrate because at that point it wasn't so much advocacy. It was more celebrating than it was. It was still advocacy. Don't get me wrong, but it was more celebration of who we were rather than advocating, advocating for the right to be who we are. So I, I just wanted to take a moment to, to live in respect to that Vito, wherever you are, you touched me, Kay, you touched me. And um, Jeanette was, was um, Manfred's mother's name. I, I, for the life of me, I can't remember his aunt's name, but she was very much allies. We absolutely love our allies. And in the blind and low vision community, we need to love our allies too. We need to enfold our allies more into our advocacy because who knows better besides us, what we go through on a day-to-day -day basis than the people that love us the people that support us. Um, I want to take a moment and ask Leah 
if she'll just give us a brief um, rundown of what the letters of our beautiful rainbow mean. Sure. So let me just go back for a moment when we started this organization. And originally, some people may remember that our affiliate charter, uh, originally our name was B-Flag, Blind Friends of Lesbians and Gays. It was a nod to um, P-Flag and all the people that had been so supportive uh, of our organization coming into being. A lot of times there were P-Flag volunteers that um, helped with the various um, organizing and um, uh, congregating and events that the organization that we've become <clears throat> would hold. Um, and we, at that time, most of the community was using the term um, GLB for gay, lesbian, and bisexual. Yeah. Um, at that point, which is in, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, we were really <laughs> unaware. And I think, unfortunately, the language really hadn't been developed yet to um, color in all the different shades of the rainbow. And we have learned over the past 20 some odd years that we need to be much more inclusive. Um, we needed to absolutely embrace the transgender community. Um, we needed to embrace the intersexual community, um, the asexual community, often referred to as ace. And um, there, Q has meant a number of different things. Um, at one point, it was uh, meant questioning. It has um, acquired typically the definition queer at this point. Um, we have a lot of folks that are gender non-binary and they don't, um, they, they don't want to be categorized into one gender or another. Um, there's uh, gender fluid. So there are many, many different shades of the rainbow. I suspect that um, those shades are just going to continue to grow and there'll be so many different colors. So often what we say at this point is GLBTQ plus um, in order to try to in, be as inclusive, excuse me, as inclusive as possible to all the different um, members of our huge community. And I, I'm just so glad that uh, we have um, really adapted, we've grown and we have come to be uh, I, uh, in, embracing and um, we've accepted everybody, you know, into um, the rainbow. And um, one thing I do want to say about that is I think to a lot of people not in our community, all the different letters can be somewhat confusing. I think they can be overwhelming. So I always say, if you, if you meet somebody, listen to them, ask them what pronoun they go by um, and let them tell you. I, I think that's incredibly important and whatever they tell you, respect it. 
Um, I, I can't tell you how, how really <laughs> amazing and wonderful it is when I, when somebody asks me that question, I'm someone that um, defines myself as she and her, but I was checking into a hotel a couple of years ago and the um, desk attendant asked me what pronoun do you go by? What pronouns do you go by? And I just, I, I, I see that more and more every day. Yep. And um, I just think we are, we are moving in such a, um, we're moving in such a, a forward um, direction. And I love the momentum. You know, Leah, crazily enough, the first time I was asked specifically about my pronouns was during my guide dog application process. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I want to remark on something. Often we hear from certain sides of the political spectrum. Oh, you know, they just keep adding letters to the rainbow. All, you know, all these people are coming out of the woodwork. You know, they're creating new identities just to have something to talk about. And I definitely want to dispel that. And Leah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. We're not coming out of nowhere. We've always been here. You know, if you look at the writings of Socrates, we're there. If you look at the way that they staged Shakespeare productions, we're there. If you look at ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, we're there. We've always been here. It it was the Western societies. I'm not going to blame it on America itself. It was the Western societies that tried and successfully for way too long pushed us into the shadows and made loving if it wasn't between a man and a woman, an abhorrent thing. But we've always been here. There's always been asexual people. There's always been non-binary and there's always been fluid people. And there's always been straight up gay, whether it be lesbian or, or gay, which is the umbrella term, but it's also the term for a man and a man. Leah, any, any thoughts on that before we start to go into the actual conversation for tonight? Sure. I, I think one thing to recognize is a lot of people say, why identify as all these different things? Why isn't it good enough just to be gay or lesbian or bisexual? You know, why do you have to incorporate all these other letters and in the um, add to the colors and the rainbow flag? And it's because we have to embrace everybody. We have to, embr- you know, we have to, uh, be as inclusive as we possibly can. And I think just as we respect all different forms of uh, vision differences, we need to respect each other's differences and we need to value who they are and what they, what they bring to the table. I've also heard um, some people say, you know, you're, you're just undermining the movement mm-hmm. that we work uh-huh. so hard, that we work so hard to um, reach. And my, my answer to that is that all these wonderful people built a bridge so that more and more people could walk over it and, you know, and, and also be embraced in the, uh, you know, in, in the rainbow. Thank you so much. So before we actually open the conversation, I just want to ask if there are any BPI members present tonight 
who'd like to say hello, introduce themselves so that we can include you in the conversation before we open it up to everybody else. Hey there, this is Bryn. How are you doing? Hey, Bryn. Hey, Bryn. Hi. Um, I recently have been going through a lot in terms of uh, gender exploration. Uh, when COVID happened, that was what woke me up and real made me realize I need to deal with my sexuality before it's too late. And so I came out as pansexual. I joined BPI. Um, I let all of my friends and family know. Uh, and I mounted those obstacles and, and got through them and came out the other side relatively unscathed. But there was still another piece of me that I hadn't dealt with. And I kind of wish I had just done both at the same time because I wouldn't have to be doing this all over again. But I'm slogging through the coming out again because I am trans. And uh, I. some of you might have known me as Byron. Um, my new name is Bryn. I use she and her pronouns. And um, yeah. Thank you, Bryn. Being vulnerable, being brave enough, feeling safe enough, all of those things. Thank you so much for sharing that with us tonight. Um, real quick, anybody else from BPI want to open up and say hello? If not, I'm going to start with the first question. All right. So Debbie, Leah, I want you guys to, to start off with your thoughts on this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride the big polka dotted rainbow pink elephant right into the middle of the room. One of the things that we wanted Eric to tell the tapestry the way he told it was because part of what the LGBTQ plus community had to had to overcome was the fact that there was the L G B and it wasn't until way way into the movement that they adopted T um it wasn't way way past that that they adopted Q there was a lot of struggle in the early days to bring the subsectors of the LGBTQ community together in concert. And at some point, um, Medellin, the Medellin Society, which um, Frank, uh, who was the second person that Eric, he was very instrumental in the Medellin Society, which you know morphed into the Stonewall Foundation and, and various other LGBTQ activism groups. But um, one of their tenants was, Unless we all, unless we all walk together, unless we all navigate together, we're never going to be able to make any kind of strides. So what do you see as the similarities between those struggles that the LGBTQ community had to overcome to become one advocating force together and our blind and low vision communities? Um, Debbie, let's start with you since, you know, this was... This was your baby. <laughs> and thank, thank you. you so much for bringing it to us. I'm very proud of my baby, which is now our baby, and that it's being cared for so lovingly and so well. I think the thing is that we have to remember in any community, no matter what its calling card is of inclusion, there is always diversity. And I think we have to begin to see that there are people that you sometimes have to take the bit in your teeth because regardless of everything that Anthony just said, and it is absolutely true, there were people 
who said, we can't stand for this. And they stood up and were counted. And the more they did that, the more people stood up and were counted with them. Each person that Eric brought to us and that I did the very little mini summaries about brought people with them into the advocacy arena. And I think that one of the things that we could learn from this community is this. All things are important. All inclusion, all recognition, all dignity, all of that is so important. But one of the things we learned from this community, or I learned, is that they had to say, we've got to organize what we fight for first. And so they began to change laws that discriminated. They began to fight for access to the workplace, for access to public acceptance, for the, uh, the right to sit in a restaurant and eat. And what I'm saying is not you can't do everything at once. And that's what we have to see. And the other thing that I think we have to see is that the leaders, the people who gave it up for what is right and sacrificed so much, they said, we, us, not they, them. And when I say they, them, I mean in the subjective case. It was all of us in it together for the common good. And I think we need to realize that, that we are stronger together than apart and that the colors of the rainbow are beautiful. And I like to think actually of all of us in the rainbow. I like to think of my own little place in the rainbow because I've always loved rainbows. And I think that we have to realize that and we have to look for what the common good is. And as we do more and more, more things come forward and we can fight for them. Well, you gave us this and it, the world didn't come to an end. And so I think what these people did, they stood up and were counted. And I think instead of many of us sitting back, anger is an important thing, but not if it's not used as fuel to fuel yes. The fuel action. And we, we can stay in anger and be bitter and mad and strike out at each other and everybody else. Or we can say, this isn't, this won't do. Just like Frank says, this government is not going to declare war on me. So he was angry and had every right to be angry, but he did something with it. And so what I would say, if I had to say, as in closing of this little diatribe, <laughs> if I had one thing to say, I would say, learn to make your anger and despair work for us and think of us, the group, and try to figure out what each of us can do in our own unique ways to move the cause of inclusion and justice and recognition and all the things that we have a right to that we can gain that. So let's make our justifiable anger not a tool to imprison us and embitter us and diminish us, but the fuel to empower us and enhance us. Great point. Thank you, Debbie. Leah? I really concur with what Debbie said in so many ways, but I think there's a couple things I would add. I think one of our biggest drawback still in the visual impairment community is the fragmentation um, 
I think, unfortunately, um, we spend a lot of time warring between each other with two different consumer groups. There's no reason in the world that we can't have different consumer groups for the blind. What I fail to understand is why those consumer groups need to constantly be at such odds with one another when we have such just gigantic issues that we need to tackle. And I'm telling you, when, when a big group like the blindness community or any disability community is fragmented like that, it makes it so much harder for change to take place because people that are opposed to that change will say, oh, well, you know, this community can't figure out what it wants. Does it want audio description or does it not? Do they want um, accessible currency? Do they not? Do they want accessible platform edges, you know, in train stations? Do they want audible pedestrian signals? or not. I think as, as blind folks, we've got to present a much more united um, presentation than we do now. And we've got to yes. learn to work together. And also, you know, there's a lot of unaffiliated um, blind folks, because truly, I, I believe a lot more people are refusing to join consumer organizations, particularly in Gen Z and millennials, because they just don't feel as if they are represented. Um, and I think when you look at the GLBTQ plus movement, so many of the, str- the strides that were made were made because all of those folks were in concert and they worked together to stand behind, you know, g- getting rid of the, um, um, I'm sorry, getting rid of the um, military um, don't ask, don't tell policy. Oh, yep. um, you know, they work together. I think it when it came to same sex civil unions and then same sex marriage, there was so much collaboration. I think where the GLBTQ plus community has fallen apart and where progress has been stunted are times when the community has not worked together. For instance, the whole uh, Michigan Women's Festival, which ran for many, many years, fell apart when the trans community wanted to um, be involved and and have their, their place. And instead of allowing that to be the case and, and, you know, creating a dialogue, um, the festival organizers decided they were simply going to cancel that that that's the kind of failure that really stunts growth and it stunts change the other thing i want to point out because i I so agree with what debbie said about using anger as fuel i do want to recognize that for all of us we have days when we are so tired (laughs) we are so tired because we have been refused a lift ride for the third time in a row because we have guide dogs. We're tired because paratransit has made us two hours late to an appointment. We're tired because we've walked into a restaurant with a guide dog and we've had a really long flight and the uh, server doesn't want us to sit down because we have a guide dog. Those are all things that just, there's such a cognitive load Sometimes well, the server would rather talk to our sighted counterparts and pretend like we're children and we can't 
make decisions or order for ourselves. But go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, all of those things put together. I mean, the, the cognitive load is really heavy. And quite frankly, I think post-COVID, it's gotten, it's gotten heavier. Um, COVID really made it clear how much more <laughs> advocacy we need to we need to put into the effort of reaching equity. Because if you think about it, so many things happen. Curbside pickup, um, you know, you needed to be able to drive to do those things. You had a vet appointment for your dog. You couldn't go into the veterinarian's office anymore because of, of COVID and, and social distancing. Um, people had such difficulty at the beginning getting groceries. Who didn't know how to use Instacart? Um, and, and DoorDash and things like that. So it is tiring. It's really tiring. And so I say to people, like on those days when you just feel like you cannot deal with it one moment more and you're going to burst into tears, just take a moment and think, okay, I need to file one more complaint. I need to stand up and argue that my guide dog belongs here and not just start screaming at a server. I need to really bring the pertinent points of why it is illegal to deny my guide dog. And as hard as that may be sometimes, it's what we have to do in order to make those changes. And we all have to be on the same page um, together about that kind of cooperation. And then, you know, we can, we can vent to each other about what an awful day we had sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> but in those and moments, we have many, many community calls that we can do that on together. I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to thank Leah and Debbie so much, Herbie and um, Sheila for being our back end and congratulations, Leah. I am so honored to serve as your vice president. This is going to be Thanks, an Anthony. amazing two years of it, of it will EPI. you've been listening to pride connection sponsored by blind pride international a special interest affiliate of the american council of the blind please check us out at blind lgbt pride.org